0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Again, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. And now is the time in our gathering. we, We turn from praising God to hearing from God's Word. We're a Bible church. We're not ashamed of that. We're actually... If I could say it, quite proud of that, thankful for it to be focused on this word, because we believe God has spoken and continues to speak through this book. And that through it, through God's word, we're introduced to God's Son, which is why we spend an inordinate amount of time as a body poring over its pages and. That's what we're going to do today as we pick up in our series on the book of Psalms called The Songs of Jesus. For those who haven't been here, a series in which we've been plugging in the playlist of Jesus, of the songs that both shaped Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. And doing that in the great hope, in the the expectant hope, in the desperate hope that by doing so, these songs would shape our lives as well. And today we'll pick up in Psalm 103. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there again to Psalm 103. And you can follow along with me as I read from verse 1 to 22. Again, Psalm 103, verses 1 to 22. This is God's Word. It says this, Of David... For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O oh you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying his vo- the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today as we meditate on these words of your long-ago king. These words of David that we would, through them, see a bit clearer your forever king, Jesus Christ. And that seeing him, that seeing Jesus and how he embodied your mercy and grace, your being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, seeing that, that our souls would, like David, bless your holy name, And I pray that we would, with David, forget not all your benefits. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Funny, by the time spring rolls around, we're already preparing for the summer, aren't we? I mean, maybe it's sad, but that's the way it is. The days are getting warmer, the sun is staying up longer, the kids are almost done with school, and there are plans to be made. Is anybody else a planner? And you know what I'm talking about, Julie. You know what I'm talking about. Because, because there's dates to be set and routes to be chosen, how fast you're going to get to wherever you're going and how many sites you're going to see along the way. At least that's how I plan our trips, right? How many things can you pack into as little time as possible? Even when it's a trip that Kath and I have taken, I don't even know how many times before. Here To New York, every year, back to New York. The cat isn't like that, though. She doesn't care one whit about the plan. All she cares about is where the closest Starbucks is. All she cares about is keeping the kids happy, or if we can't do that, how we're going to put them to sleep. (laughs) And by what means. I plan, she is just along for the ride. But there comes a time in that trip, though, when New York is still a ways away, and the kids are kind of getting cranky, and Kath's kind of getting cranky, and she inevitably asks, why are we doing this? I mean, as the one who, who didn't plan this. Why are we putting in the, the 20-something hours of windshield time, traveling across seven states, this year with five kids, and now you've offered to pick up your 93-year-old grandma halfway through? <laughs> Just why are we doing this again? To which I turn and remind her of where we're headed. Because year after year, it's to the place that we met and got to know one another. It's where we spent our first summer together as a married couple. To what, for all intents and purposes, was our first home. But that we're headed to more than just that. Because we're also on our way to see, to see Joe and Lauren. Lauren. Rebecca and Jorge, we're going to go see my folks and my big sister, Bethany. We're going to spend a week with Naomi and Jake, who have their first baby on the way. And we're going to go see crazy Uncle Andrew, who's been spending all his time trying to learn how to to fly recently. And then there's wild Aunt Joanna, who's going to wander off with the kids when she's not supposed to, and buy them ice cream when she's not supposed to, but... Who's going to make your side split when she shows back up with all the antics? Because it's not just about the place, as nostalgic as that is, it's about the people who make the place what it is. Which is a little bit like that that conversation is a little bit like what's happening here in Psalm 103. You see, if you remember, the story of the Psalms is is about a trip on which at this point we are headed back to the promised land. But God's people got a knack for getting a little grumpy along the way. That's what tends to happen on the way back to the promised land, whenever they're on their way back. Not just in terms of where they're going, but on how long it's taken them to get there, right? So this man named David shows up to remind us of where we're headed, not just in terms of the place, but in terms of the, the person that makes the place what it is, that, that we're headed back to God. And, and headed first to a God who's dealt with our faults. And second to a God who will deal, who has promised to deal with our frailty. And that's what we're going to look at today of how the person makes the place and how this is about a trip back to God, a God who's, who's first dealt with our faults and then second is a God who will deal, who has promised to deal with our frailty. But before we get there, notice that each of these aspects of who God is and what God does is grounded for David in an experience of God's people back in the days of Moses. That's what verse 7 says. We're picking up after the the intro to this psalm. That's what verse 7 says, that God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So, so that for David to point this people forward to where they're going on this trip toward the, the promised land, David starts by pointing them back to where they've been. Because that's when God's people first learned, verse 8, that, that the Lord is, is merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do you remember the story? When God's people were on their way to that promised land for the first time, after after God had brought them out of slavery and was leading them toward salvation. But instead of following God, they made for themselves a, a golden calf. And said, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt. And unsurprisingly, it says there in that story that God's anger burned against them. And that he was ready to wipe them out. Same story that was behind Psalm 90. He was ready to wipe them out, but he didn't. And later we find out why when God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and passes by his servant and proclaims to his servant his name, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. At the very moment when he should have been going WWE on them. When he should have been driving them into into a tombstone pile driver. But instead he's proclaiming his mercies. And this is the experience to which David points back. So that he can tell us what we have to look forward to. Again, first, to a God who's dealt with our faults. And second, to a God who will deal, who has promised to deal with our frailty. First, to a God who's dealt with our faults and and dealt with them by forgiving them. Can't underestimate the importance of that word for life dealt with our faults by forgiving them. As David says in verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. That's not the type of God he is, and we know it because of what God's done in the past. That when God's people were at their worst, rather than wipe them out entirely and give them what they deserved, he spared them. Because verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Thank God. Not unlike the experience of a guy named Matt, who driving home from a 24-hour shift as a firefighter, fell asleep at the wheel, woke up to what he called the most God-awful sound I ever heard, crossing the yellow line, and taking out another car head-on. Taking out with it the woman who was driving. Young wife, pregnant for the second time. Her baby in the back, 19 months old. Mom was dead on arrival at the hospital. And yet, this guy, Matt, out of the most horrific moment of his life, Matt was met with a profound experience of mercy from none other than that woman's husband. Who not only pled down Matt's sentencing over the next two years of the investigation that went into it, but who over the years after that began to meet with Matt regularly and walk with him through life and walk with him into his own marriages and as he had kids and ultimately help him cope with the weight of guilt he says he could not otherwise have dealt with. Because this woman's husband explained, you forgive as you've been forgiven. Forgiven. And if you've been forgiven, then you need to extend the forgiveness. What a profound experience of mercy, but but how much more experiencing the mercy of God? How much more experiencing it from God who forgives not because he's been forgiving, but just because he's a forgiving God? who doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, but rather is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, David says, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Above every cloud, above every inch of the atmosphere, how great is the steadfast love of the Lord toward those who fear Him. And David knows this as much as anyone, right? Because when David was confronted with his sin, and when David admitted to his sin, and when David repented of his sin, it was through a prophet named Nathan that that he was told, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Sure, there would be consequences as there usually are. David's whole house would be undone for what he did. But he would not be repaid according to his iniquities. Cut short and cut off from the one he needed most. Because verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, David says, so far he removes our transgressions from us. I was trying to picture that. I don't even know how to picture that on this globe we live on how far is the east from the west i don't even know what that means yet that's as far as he removes our transgressions from us he he puts them away in mercy not giving us what we deserve and then in grace giving us what we don't what love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Verse 13, For as a father shows compassion, shows mercy to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So that the, the God we're headed back to, the God that, who, who makes the promised land what it is, is a God who's dealt with our faults and dealt with them by forgiving them. He's a God who, second, though, will likewise deal with our frailty. Man, and coming off of last week's psalm, I hope this hits home. He's a God who likewise deals with our frailty, will deal with our frailty. And for, forgive me if I get a little bit excited about this, but I know my own frailty. And if you know yours, I hope you get excited too. Because this is amazing that this God will overcome the brokenness of my life, which you will never know. And I won't know yours either. But he'll overcome that too. Because God's going to deal with it. Verse 14. For he knows our frame, David says. God knows our frame. And how easily we break. And he remembers, David says, that we are dust. That from dust we were taken. And to dust we have been sentenced to return. He knows it. It's not news. That verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it, knows it no more. Just like Moses said last week. But. Circle it. Underline it. Highlight this. But. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On who? On those who fear Him. Which means that although we've been damned to dust, condemned to dust, sentenced to dust, and, and to pass away For our fault, doomed to the frailty some of us know too well. As T.S. Eliot said, he who was living is now dead. We who are living now are in the process of dying with a little patience. And yet, even though we've been so sentenced to dust, there is hope that we will yet live. I go trolling for illustration sometimes, which is not the greatest habit. And yesterday night, I went trolling in the top 40s of the pop charts. It's not a great place to go trolling. (laughs) I tell you what, last time I did that, I don't know when it was, but there was at least some stuff you could pull from. I, I told Catherine this morning, I was appalled what our kids are listening to these days. The messages that they're being sent by by the rich and the famous, to just go get it your way, no commitment necessary, have fun where you want it, take what you want, leave what you don't, and saying, what teenage girl, what teenage boy is actually going to flourish from this? Yeah, it's one thing for the rich and the famous. It's one thing for them to, to buy them out, themselves out of any settlement they need to, to, to buy themselves out of any predicament they get into. What teenage girl living in real life America, what teenage boy living in real life America is going to prosper under this? And yet, even though we've been so sentenced to dust, to death, here is where we might have life. A life that is on offer nowhere else like it ought to be. Not because of some hapless quest for some holy grail or some helpless search for an Eden that is surely no more. Not that we can accomplish it through modern medicine or anything else on our own, but that we might live by the sustaining, steadfast love of the Lord. Catch this, because this is his point. This is David's point. That these characteristics here for David aren't just attributes of God they are actions of God God is merciful in showing mercy God is gracious in showing grace and with his steadfast love he sustains so that those of us condemned to the dash between the dates by his steadfast love can live forever Because if God in his mercy has not dealt with us as we deserve, but rather in his grace has dealt with us as we don't, removing our transgressions from us then it stands to reason that God can just as much deal with our frailty, which is a result of the faults, like he's dealt with the faults themselves. And that having dealt with our faults, dealing with our frailty, is exactly what he intends to do. And that the never-stopping never giving up, always and forever love of God from everlasting to everlasting will be what and will be able to sustain us with an immortality which is as foreign to us, which we have no more right to than the forgiveness that makes it possible. By God and God's power, by God's mercy and grace, by God's steadfast love and faithfulness, we will find the life that we were meant for from the very beginning. That is our hope. David says that that verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And His righteousness, His work of setting things right. That's what this means here. His work of setting things right are to the children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. His commandments. His covenant. And this is the heart of the psalm. That on our way back to the promised land, we would remember and be driven by our return to a God who's dealt with our faults and will deal with, was promised to deal with our frailty. Drawn back, like we looked at in Psalm 90. As Moses said last week, by the pain, but no less driven by the pleasure, as David says here. Let me end, though, by just clarifying quickly the who, the what and the when this is for. The who, the what, and the when this is for. First, who this is for. And let me draw your attention back to verse 17, where it says again that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Because this is the who this is for. Those who fear Him. Those who care about God and the things of God. And care enough to let it affect them. It says that His righteousness is to children's children. So that it's not somehow limited to just one generation. But extends to all. To those who, who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Not that they're perfect. Not that these people, the who of this psalm, are perfect. Or, or walk in perfect obedience. That's not the expectation here. But that they live by grace through faith. It's just an applicable summary of what he's talking about. That these people live by grace through through faith. Because that's what the covenant was all about. That's what God's covenants are always about. Others twist them, and we often harp on the twisted version. That's not wrong to harp on the twisted version, how wrong that is. But the covenant itself, each covenant, every covenant that God makes, is always by grace through faith. The covenant with Adam was by grace, through faith. The covenant with Noah was by grace, through faith. The covenant with Abraham was no less by grace, through faith. And on to Moses and David himself, up through what we now know in Jesus Christ. That God is a God who works in relationship by grace, Expecting faith. So that the who of this psalm, the who can delight in these things, can bank on these things, can can exult in these things, are those who are willing to live by the fear of God that is by grace through faith. Always. It's always, always. So, the question of whether you can trust in what God's dealt with in the past, what God's promised to deal with in the future, isn't based on whether your life is all buttoned up, but whether you're living by grace through faith. Because that's who this is for. Catherine and I even had a conversation yesterday, if you don't mind sharing. Kath. thanks. Appreciate that. (laughs) Had a conversation yesterday, and Catherine and I were talking over the kitchen counter. Catherine was real upset at the moment of feeling like she had a missed opportunity with one of our neighbors to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. said, what does this say about me? I say, honestly, I'm just happy you're worried about it. If you weren't, that means you're not living in the fear of the Lord. That means you have no care or concern. But that you care and are concerned enough to fear Him and and, and, and double take at your own actions, I think says enough that, that you are actually living in this. And if you step out now by grace through faith constantly looking to to do better. Who wouldn't want to honor the king that way? But this then isn't a question of whether you're in the family or not. This is merely a question of whether we grow together and do better for the one who did his best for us. That's the who. What this is for comes from the part of this psalm we didn't really look at yet, where it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. David says it again at the end, that that we're to join the angels themselves and the works of God's hands in, in blessing him. What does that mean though? Because this isn't really language that we throw out there all the time uh, other than, you know, church when we're, we're around churchy folk, right? We don't usually talk this way. What does it mean to bless the Lord? What does that even look like? Especially, what does it look like to do so in our souls, Well, from how this word is used elsewhere, let me just suggest that this means to simply elevate God to the highest position, the highest possible position in your life, and to do so publicly. That you would think, act, and live as if God is the center of your life above your spouse, above your kids, above your job or your favorite pastime, that God would exceed them all. And you can test whether he is or not by what comes out of your mouth. This is how things work for us, right? What's on the inside comes out usually through this whole ear. So you can test whether that's happening by what comes out of your mouth. What do you talk about? around the water cooler? What do you talk about on the curb with your neighbor? Is it always just March Madness? Is it always just the latest hoopla going in Hollywood? Or does Jesus come out? Does God sit high? What comes out of your mouth? What comes out of your mouth at night with your kids? Is it just constantly trying to get them in line to do what you wish they would do? Or is it discipling their hearts, shepherding their hearts in the Lord? What comes out with your spouse? Just the latest gossip from around the corner? Just the latest headache you're dealing with at work? Just the next bend around the next corner you're looking to take or are you exalting christ exalting god in what you think and what you do and what you say ultimately in your life and don't tell me you don't have the personality for this because this is how we are all wired You do it with something. The question is, do you do it with the one who's most important? So, who it's for, what it's for, lastly, when it's for. That it's for now. Between God saving us out of slavery and bringing us into salvation some day to come. It's for now. And for us all the more than even David when he first penned these words. Because David was looking forward to both his faults being dealt with and to his frailty. He might have put his Stock in the sacrificial system that itself looked forward. But in so doing, He looked forward too. For us now, this side of the cross, we've got the one who's already dealt with the faults. We've already seen it done. And are simply awaiting His return. So how much more are our lives on the way to the promised land be marked by the blessing of the Lord in our souls. In what we do, in what we think, and in what we say. Like that song that I already quoted, the first two stanzas of says, what riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they were many, but His mercy was more. Praise the Lord. His mercy was more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What better way to spend our days trekking on towards the promised land, not forgetting what God's done, but rather blessing Him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that it would be so. We so often are caught timid and frightened by all else And so quickly lose our fear of you, our our healthy awe of who you are and what you do and what without you we stand in. A debt we can't afford. But I pray seeing Jesus, I pray seeing even David look forward to Jesus, I pray it would loosen our lips pray that you would become the center of our every conversation. I pray that we would live for nothing less than blessing you and our souls. I would pray we would do it until your son does return and bring that promised land to be. In Jesus' name, amen.